Hey, everyone. Mary here. The What Next team is on vacation for the rest of the week, so we're re-airing some relevant episodes you might have missed the first time around. Today's episode, it's about immigration policy. We wanted to re-air it after the Trump administration announced last week that they're going to put in place more visa restrictions. They're set to affect hundreds of thousands of immigrant workers. And the reason the president gave for these new rules was the coronavirus. But the episode you'll hear today traces the kinds of anti-immigrant policies and rhetoric Trump espouses to work that has been going on for years. Work that started thanks to one man, a small-town eye doctor in Michigan with a very specific, very racist set of ideas about how to keep America white. One note, this episode originally aired back in July 2019. That's when this man died. Okay, here we go. Hassan Ahmad likes figuring things out, solving puzzles. Uh, Yeah, I I guess I'm a bit of a fixer. You know, I like to try to figure out uh, what the reason is behind something and understand, like, the patterns. I mean, at the end of the day, He speaks eight languages, like French and Spanish, but also Urdu, Mandarin, a little Cantonese on the side. I am, I can do business in them, yeah. If you can recognize the patterns, then, then you can, uh, then you can speak the language. Looking for patterns helps Hassan out in his day job as an immigration lawyer. He says getting people into this country, making sure they can stay, it's gotten harder over the last few years. It started decades ago, got much worse after 9-11, worse again after Donald Trump's election. And it was that election that made Hassan want to figure out why his job was getting so hard. It started when he saw this photo. Do you remember that picture of Chris Kobach uh, right after the election? Uh, he was standing with then-president-elect Trump. At the time, Trump was meeting with potential cabinet members at his New Jersey estate, shaking hands with him at the front door. Chris Kobach was there, making the case that he should run the Department of Homeland Security. And he was advising him on uh, immigration policy for the upcoming administration. This is like November of 2016. And he forgot to put his strategic plan into his leather folder and you could zoom in on the page, on the picture, and you could read half the words on the page. I don't know if you recall that or not. Kobach's plan included notes about rapidly building a border wall and reducing the intake of Syrian refugees to zero. It called for adding extreme vetting questions for high-risk aliens. And for Hassan, back then, this was alarming. You know, my mind went back to look at, okay, well, where where did these policies come from? So Hassan traced the pattern back, found the anti-immigration organization that supported Kobach for years, found out it had supported plenty of other people in the incoming administration, too. And that this organization, it was all started by one man, a guy named John Tanton. People who work on this sort of thing are often called anti-immigrant or anti-immigration. And that would be only appropriate if you would call a person who went on a diet anti-food. I knew who John Tanton was, but at that point, I don't think I fully appreciated the centrality of his role, the fact that he really was a mastermind, a godfather who built this entire framework of the modern anti-immigrant movement. I mean, I heard one person describe him as the most influential unknown man in America. Yeah, nobody knows his name, and that's exactly the way he wanted it. Earlier this month, John Tanton died in the small Michigan town he'd lived in for years. 
a town he once bragged had virtually no immigrant population. But his legacy lives on. Today on the show, Hassan's going to explain what he's learned about that legacy. Because Hassan suspects he's going to be fighting John Tanton's ideas for years to come. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Much of what we know about John Tanton and how his views on immigration evolved come from one place, the University of Michigan, where box after box of Tanton's personal papers are stored at the Bentley Historical Library. When Hassan Ahmad got interested in Tanton, he wanted to see those papers. But Tanton had struck a deal with the university that half of his archive must remain under seal until 2035. Hassan Ahmad heard that and thought, no way. These documents are in the public interest now. And so he's suing to make all of Tanton's archives available. He thinks it's important for people to see all of the letters and notes documenting the anti-immigration superstructure that Tanton built. It's a white nationalist movement. His correspondence, or the people that he was talking to, known white nationalists, you know, uh, people like Peter Brimelow, David Duke. There's even a letter to a then unknown journalist named Tucker Carlson from 1997. And it just shows you the scope of who he was actually talking to to try to find allies. Uh, now, it's interesting. Tucker Carlson wrote, a, wrote an op-ed in, in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal back in 1997 calling him out for his racism and his white nationalism uh, and eugenics. You mean Tucker Carlson was calling Tanton out? Yes, Tucker Carlson was calling Tanton out, right, in 1997. Right, unclear where he stands now. Right. Tanton was an avowed eugenicist. One of the uh, first papers that I came across in the archive uh, was one authored by him called the, the Case for Passive Eugenics. And it's very much into the theory of uh, inherent superiorities and inferiorities among the different races and how it's important to have immigration policies that tends to breed stronger people and better racial stock. He accepted money from the Pioneer Fund. The Pioneer Fund itself is a uh, an outfit that actually funds eugenics research and race-based pseudoscience. It was started in 1937 and it modeled its family planning program on the Nazis' uh, Lebensborn program. And the other funny thing about this guy is that he was just a doctor from rural Michigan. He lived right. in Petoskey, Michigan, is I think the name? Right. He started out from a environmental perspective. He was an avowed, you know, environmentalist conservationist and came to see and he bought into the population bomb uh, theory, now debunked population theory in 1967 saying that we have to control population, uh, even helped out Planned Parenthood back in the day. I mean, that's how much he believed in it, right? But he came to see immigration as the chief cause of overpopulation and embraced the uh, immigration restriction as the chief way to curtail that. When I started reading about John Tanton, I was really intrigued by the contradictions in this guy. He made his name as an anti-immigration 
advocate. But of course, his father immigrated here from Canada. Um, So he was a white person immigrating, but he was an immigrant. And he came to it from this perspective originally of being like a Sierra Club member, someone who appreciated the natural world. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, yeah, it, it's it's interesting because there there is unfortunately this attraction that bona fide white nationalists have to the environmental movement, and they've the problem becomes when you start seeing people and then population and then certain populations as the threat to uh, to environmental stability. I mean, these are debunked theories of of population control, and and uh, it's used as an easy facially non-racist excuse for pushing a racist agenda. And ultimately, that is John Tanton's legacy. He tried to to bring this this idea of immigration restriction through the environmental lens, and nobody bought it. I mean, just the same sort of quizzical look that you probably had. It's like, what's the connection here? Nobody bought into it. It didn't catch. Yeah, there was actually, in one article I read, someone from the Sierra Club was quoted and said, yeah, John Tanton came and sort of said to us, why don't we look into immigration as an issue? And they sort of said, well, I don't I don't think that makes that's not what we're doing here. Right. That's not who they are. That's not who they are. So he started founding his own groups. Then he started founding his own groups. And then he started to realize what it was that got people hot and bothered. And that was questions of race and national identity and language. And that's what he used. And so I would say that his views evolved or I should say devolved into white nationalism until 1993 or 94, when he's writing to one of his colleagues, he said, I've come to the conclusion or the belief that for Euro-American society to persist, there needs to be a clear majority, Mm. Euro-American majority. And then another quote about if, as whites see their power dissolve, will they go quietly into the night or will there be an explosion? Which seems to me a pretty thinly veiled call for a race war. And somehow he started these organizations that now have become part of the mainstream of immigration dialogue, like FAIR. Right. He started uh, an immigration restriction group, and he called it FAIR, and that was founded in 1979. Over the next 40 years, FAIR has sort of mushroomed or grown into an entire network of organizations, including the Center for Immigration Studies, which posits itself as a think tank that was founded in uh, 1984 or 85. And then there was Numbers USA, which is sort of the grassroots group. There were a number of other front groups, such as the such as Progressives for Immigration Reform. Yeah, I know it sounds weird, but Progressives for Immigration Reform is actually a tent and front group. Um, nearly all of them are funded by one uh, foundation known as the Colcom Foundation, which is outside of Pittsburgh. So are you saying the Colcom Foundation is like a front foundation for John Tanton? Well, that's who they basically donate to. The Colcom Foundation grew out of the estate of an heiress named uh, Cordelia Scaife May. She was a, Mel- a branch of the Mellon family. That's where that's where her money came from. And she and John Tanton were very, very close. He knew her as Cordy, and uh, they they spent a lot of time together. She was also an environmentalist, and you know, with her money, walked that same path. That, that John Tanton did, from environmentalism to population control to immigration restriction. The CSMA Family Trust or Foundation, which turned into Colcom after her death in 2005, has given hundreds of millions of dollars to Tanton groups over the years. So John Tanton was 
founding these groups with his own money, but then also recruiting other people with even deeper pockets to give additional funds and sort of keep his opinion and his ideas out there. He talked to everybody. We have letters from him to Warren Buffett, uh, from John Tenton to Warren Buffett. He was constantly looking for money, constantly in fundraising mode. Uh, He was a meticulous note taker, and he found like-minded people in Congress and in policy positions. There's letters from him and and his uh, fair co-founders meeting with the commissioner of the then uh, Immigration Naturalization Service, the INS. He built a movement in his spare time. Hmm. Part of what I find fascinating looking at John Tanton's history is that his trajectory seems to keep taking darker and darker turns. Like he starts out with the Sierra Club environmentalism. And when those folks aren't so into his ideas, he begins starting his own groups. And then eventually, even his own groups are saying, no, no, I'm not sure that's the right approach. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what happened when he tried to get fair to embrace the idea of English as an official language? Yeah, that happened. Uh, he was very much, you know, attuned to matters of national identity. And, and one of the uh, binding ties he saw was language. And so he thought that English should be the official language of the United States. He couldn't get buy-in from, from FAIR's board of directors, so he went and founded U.S. English. And within a very short period of time, the membership of U.S. English eclipsed that of FAIR by several orders of magnitude. Yeah, it it was interesting that Tanton himself flagged USA English as this turning point for him, where he said he realized that English was this issue everyone wanted to talk about when they were talking to him about immigration. They'd talk about how riled up they'd they'd get when they would see languages other than English at the ballot box. And Chris Hayes profiled John Tanton years and years ago. And Tanton told him, this is where I realized feelings trump facts. Right. He understood human psychology. He understand understood what it was that actually got people riled up, got people motivated to donate or to do things, call their senator, call their congressman. He tapped into the same underbelly that Donald Trump tapped into to get elected. Hmm. At the end of that profile, there's this interesting moment where Tanton actually talks about inequality He talks about the real problem with immigration and how the real problem is we have a very wealthy country, the United States, with a very, very large border with a much poorer country, which is Mexico, and that the real problem is that we haven't distributed the wealth evenly. And so, of course, we have lots of people coming across the border. And it struck me because that's something that a lot of progressives would probably agree with. And. You'll see smidgens uh, in Tanton's work of, of making these sort of statements. I, I give him credit for being somewhat of an intellectual to be able to toss up these ideas and recognize them. The issue is, is what do you do about it? And Fair's own statement after he died last week, they said that he was you know, an intellectual and he was tossing up ideas, even if they were unpopular, but that just shows his genius. The problem is, is that you got to look and see, well, what are the ideas that he's tossing up to deal with these issues, right? Yeah, he's throwing up different ideas, but every single one of them was uh, going to uh, have disproportionate impact or harm a person of color. And that's where you really got to look at it. He wasn't going around saying, well, maybe we should increase immigration here or do it in this way or, 
you know, and no, every single thing was restriction. Every single thing was detained, 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 deport, deport, deport. When you go to these organizations like FAIR, which is now very established in Washington, and you ask them about their association with John Tanton, what do they say? Radio silence. I haven't heard anything from them despite reaching out to them publicly. They, uh, I know, have gone through a lot of effort to try to distance themselves from Tanton, but Tanton's thought, his race-based ideology permeates in all of the policies that we've seen uh, FAIR and, and, and its sister organizations uh, advocate for over the past 40 years. They can't get away from it. He's in their DNA. It's interesting to hear you talk because I've done some reporting into reproductive health. And of course, Margaret Sanger has a pretty tangled history with the eugenics movement, too. And people do try to paint that as a reason why all of her work into birth control is invalid. And I wonder what what you'd say about why you think this is different. That's a really good question. I think that in the papers that I've seen, there has been no immigration policy that has benefited or empowered an immigrant community. And that's what makes us different. It is all anti-immigrant. It is all based on on appeals to racism, on appeals to nationalism, on appeals to fear of unwanted immigrants. And I don't think you can say the same thing about the similar things in the reproductive rights movement. Hmm. So you've sued to get access to the full archive of information. I'm wondering what you think that will do and how you think it'll make a difference. Ultimately, all I'm trying to do is to shine a light on it. Um, When you have organizations of this import, of this stature, of this influence, I should say, uh, that affect the lives of so many people, I can't imagine a stronger public interest. Tanton was a linchpin. Rarely do you find somebody who's responsible, who is so staggeringly influential. I just want to shine a light on it because sunlight is the best disinfectant. Hassan Ahmad, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Hassan Ahmad is the founder of the HMA Law Firm in Virginia. He's suing the University of Michigan, asking them to unseal the complete archives of the late John Tanton. Since this episode last aired, the Michigan Supreme Court has taken up the case. And that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Daniel Hewitt. Ethan Brooks helped produce this story back in July 2019. Ethan also produces What Next TBD. That crew will be back with a brand new episode in this feed tomorrow morning. Henry Grabar is kicking off a six-part series on the future of cities. Check it out. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here on Monday.